Defenseless under the night, our world in stupor lies. Yet dotted everywhere, ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchange their messages. May I, composed like them of eros and of dust, beleaguered by the name negation and despair, show an affirming flame and embrace the void. I find this void quite calming, actually. It's like, this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the news story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 136 of Embrace the Void, where each and every one of us is the storm. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we've got a nice, meaty, philosophical deep dive to distract y'all from the growing cabin fever. Uh, Before we get to that, I just want to give a shout out to one of our patrons, Jake the Fake Jake, who wrote the invocation for last week's show. Um, I love when folks send invocations for the show, so if you feel like you know a great piece of poetry or some voidy short story or just a quote or something that you think is in the spirit of the show, send it along to voidpod at gmail.com. And now, here's some truth bombs. My guest this week is Michael Bench Capon, a philosopher who works in a library and who is a dues-paying member of the Philosophy Twitter Guild. Michael, would you like to say hi to the Void? Hello, Void. (laughs) So nice to have you on in our continued Borg assimilation of all things Philosophy Twitter. It's Um, really nice to be here. (laughs) You are identified on Twitter as the really cool-looking toucan, I believe that is. Is that right? That's That's right. I'm the toucan. You're the toucan. And yeah. um, I was curious if you could let folks know a little bit how you identify philosophically, what were your interests when you did your philosophy PhD, and you know what problems are of particular interest to you these days? So my PhD was called Empty Names, which is a technical term that refers to names for things uh, that don't exist or names which uh, whose, exist, whose reference don't exist. So things like Father Christmas, the name rather than Father Christmas, the dude. Uh, mm-hmm. It was it was kind of broad, so it had some philosophy of language in there, had some bit of logic in there, and and some metaphysics of fiction as well. Um, I was kind of yeah, I was kind of trained as a sort of straight up analytic philosopher, sort of metaphysics, logic, language, epistemology, that kind of thing. Uh, I and I I sort of really bought into the whole analytic philosophy is the right way to do philosophy. We've got it right and we're making progress and it's all, and it's all great. And I was pretty ahistorical with it. I um, turned a bit of a corner when I discovered the history of philosophy without any gaps podcast, I guess. Uh, I don't know if you listen to it, but I'm a fan. Interesting. And I know that one. Yeah. You don't know. Well, so Peter Adams's pod- podcast, he's basically going through the whole history of philosophy from the beginning to okay. the present day and uh-huh. uh, without any gaps. So he'll cover the Cyrenaics, he'll cover the- Theophrastus, he'll cover Peter Damien, all the people you haven't heard of. And <laughs> That's small he, um, Yeah. Well, it's, uh, you know, it's great. Yeah, and he's also... It's good. Uh, he started out just Western, but he inc- he's got an India one and an Africana one as well. Uh, but the he's currently in the Italian Renaissance. But anyway, it kind of got me interested into in kind of other sort of non-analytic philosophy. And now I kind of have a, a pretty sort of eclectic attitude, although the sort of first order, most of the things I'm actually able to do myself are analytic stuff. I'm... Kind of, I see value in pretty much all of it, and have the view mm-hmm. that nobody really has any idea what they're doing. But the important thing is that we don't stop doing it. Yeah, good hard co-sign on that one for sure. 
Um, so what did you come away with in your thesis about Father Time or Father Christmas or something like that? Were there any important upshots for um, names that do not apply to any real entity? Well, so there's this view, Minongianism, which is named after Alexius Minong. He thinks that there are these non-existent things out there. There are two kinds of things, existent things and non-existent things. And mm-hmm. what I tried to do was take that view very seriously. Uh, and so a lot of people just write it off. Like they'll say, well, you know, uh, existence is just the existential quantifier. So saying there are non-existent things is just a straight up contradiction and not in a good way. But I, um, I, yeah, I, but I was, some people take it seriously, that view. I was taking it seriously, but also sort of disagreeing with it mm-hmm. and saying that if you, so the sort of, the kind of main problem uh, with it um, for the empty name view or the view that there are meaningful empty names is mm-hmm. that since Kripke and Kaplan and Marcus and people uh, in the mid 20th century, people started thinking that names weren't disguised descriptions, names, the, the meaning of a name either was or at least included integrally the thing mm-hmm. that it's a name of. And mm-hmm. so if there is no thing, then they can't mean anything because if the meaning is the name and it hasn't got, if the meaning is the thing it refers to and it doesn't refer to anything, then it doesn't mean anything. But they do seem to mean something. So I was trying to sort that out. And basically I kind of said that you can leave everything else the way it was and still make sense of empty names. Uh, sort of, you don't need to revise the stuff that works for non-empty names. That was kind of the view I was taking. Yeah, and for folks who are always wondering why we include fictional characters in our lightning round list of things that are real or not, is to try to catch the Minongians, try to yeah. pull out the individuals who will actually bite the bullet and say that fictional characters are real in a sense. Yeah, um, you don't actually have to be a Minongian to think that fictional characters are real. There true, are there are other that, ways you could get there, for sure. There are, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a, uh, I mean, the answer, the answer to that question is whether fictional characters are real is, uh, I think... It's basically an ambiguous question, and the uh, answer to one of the disambiguations is yes, and the answer to the other of the disambiguations is no. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, uh, so I'll have to I'll have to decide when the when I get to that question in the lightning round. Which which disambiguation you're going to go with and not be allowed to explain it? Yeah, that's that's the worst part. Yeah, um, no, and it, it does uh, get to a little bit what we want to talk about today in terms of the idea of like when our situations like that just disambiguation issues versus when there might actually be like a genuine contradiction yeah absolutely so um i don't know if i'm allowed to say both as an answer to your uh but like not but just on one univocal reading of your questions if i'm allowed to say both but as uh (laughs) as someone who embraces contradiction i may i may want to but, yeah, uh, but I, I'm not going to allow you to when the time comes because it would throw off our data set. But um, yeah, I, I think will. That's probably the, I think you made the right call. I will. Uh, yeah, I will. everyone would said everyone would have said both too much. Um, but I will allow you to at least that's... spend the next forty or fifty minutes explaining why you might think that it's important to believe it's both. Um, so. Okay. I wanted to get you on because I read a, a specifically a blog that you a post that you had done about I know but like it's you know it's philosophy um, about and I'm, I'm even pronouncing this wrong dialetheism is that the correct way to pronounce that that is correct dialetheism okay which is amongst the worst philosophy words I've ever seen like of words that make people not want to learn about something I feel like this one's probably got to be near near the top so i'm hoping maybe there's some other word we could use but if even if there isn't um could you start by like explaining for folks in in the base the easiest way possible right what is dialetheism and is it a troll philosophy position or is it a serious position or is it both so dialetheism is the view that there are true contradictions so a lot of people it's kind of the mainstream view is that uh if it's true that it's raining, then it's not true that it's not raining. They kind of, you know, it can be one or the other. Maybe it's neither, but it shouldn't be both. Um, or, I mean, obviously it could be raining mm-hmm. in one place, but not in another place, but it's not going to be raining and not raining in the same place. Dialetheists, they don't agree with that. They think that the law of non-contradiction is, isn't true. Um, or if it is true, then it's also false. 
and they think that sometimes there are statements of the form P and not P which are true. And uh, a popular one they like is the liar paradox. So the sentence, this sentence is false. You might think that that was both true and false. Um, because if it's whether it's because if it's true, then it's false, and if it's false, then it's true. And so, uh, whether it's true or false, then it's both. And that's uh, that's the view that Dialetheus take about the lie sentence. And uh, it's actually the view I take about the lie sentence as well. Uh, I think Dialetheism is probably true, and mm -hmm. uh, might not be, but I think it probably is. And I think that's that's the solution to the lie paradox that I'm most satisfied with. So what that's kind of. What kind of follows from that solution of the paradox? What do you feel like are the upshots of that philosophically? So uh, it kind of varies. So it, it, it depends how you diagnose it. So okay. you can be what I, what I think of and refer to in the post you mentioned, uh, a truth dialetheist. Um, I'm not sure. I don't think that's... Mm -hmm. That's a very common uh, term for it, but it's what I called it. Uh, a truth dialetheist is, is somebody who thinks that dialetheism arises because of something quite specific about truth. So because uh, you know, it's true that P is true whenever P is true, then when you get self-reference, then you'll get these, then you'll get things being both true and false. But it's just an artifact of truth maybe it's an artifact of the way that we describe things and just it's useful to have this to representational device truth so that we can say various things that we wouldn't otherwise be able to say like uh, everything aaron says is true can't say mm. that it's much quicker to say that and say if aaron says it's raining then it's raining if aaron says that it's not raining then it's not raining and we're, as someone for all the sentences in the language much quicker to say everything aaron says is true mm -hmm. and so we have this expressive device in our language but it just happens that the way it works gives rise to these true contradictions that's a view i associate with jc beale uh, who wrote a book called spandrels of truth now a spandrel is a bit sort of do you know what a spandrel is it's an architectural thing I, I i'm vaguely aware that it's something some sort of tool to need to do with architecture that like it's, bridges things maybe kind of it if, if you make an arch which you might uh -huh. do if you were making a bridge then uh -huh. you'll have the curve and then if you imagine a rectangle outside it then there'll be these kind of curved triangle bits um, mm -hmm. on either side at the top of the of the arch. So if you imagine, and these are just extra things that you get uh, by having an arch, which is useful. And sometimes they make them look nice, but you've got to do something with them. They're going to be there. And so the idea uh -huh. is that true contradictions are spandrels of truth in that they are just things that arise if you have a truth predicate in the language which behaves in the way that it's useful for a truth predicate to behave. Okay, um, so this is this is like one subcategory of dialetheism, right? A view that says that we get these weird contradictions, but only, or at least primarily, in situations where we're talking about truth, and because truth is a weird predicate, weird things happen when you start saying that things are always true or something like that. Exactly. So it's the uh, it's the world's fault. It's not the world's fault. It's our fault. Or it's uh, truth's fault. Um, but so the world is out there doing its own thing, being consistent. And then we come along with this truth predicate. And then that generates these contradictions. But it doesn't make, mean the world is inconsistent. It's not something that's out there in, in the sort of structure of reality. It's just, okay. um, but yeah. Uh, now, so I carry on. No, I just want to, so I think that this is very useful, and I want to get the other categories, the, there are a couple other kinds of dialetheism that you reference in the paper, but I think it would be helpful for a second to, to like, bait the hook a little bit more here for folks who don't necessarily have a sense of why any of this matters a little bit. So it would seem, right, uh, if, if we assume dialism, dialetheism is a real thing, uh -huh. we would have some concerns about what it means for contradictions, broadly speaking, and arguments as a result, because the vast, for, you know, vast majority of arguments that we make boil down to proving that somebody has made a contradiction somewhere in their own position. But if you're saying sometimes contradictions are true, what does that mean for our ability to prove arguments right or wrong? Would you say that that's at least something that is at risk or on the table when you start to entertain this view? Yeah, very much so. It's one of the reasons why people are 
re resistant to become to being dilethiists and or and maybe think that it's a view which you just can't sensibly hold that you wouldn't be able to you wouldn't be able to reason in a, in, a, in a in a sensible way if you were open to the possibility that things are contradictory so as you say uh, arguments are tied to contradictions in a certain way and one way that this is often explained uh, when we're teaching logic to sort of first year students is that a, a, an argument is valid if the premises and the negation of the conclusion are jointly inconsistent so the negation mm -hmm. so it's so the premises being true and the conclusion being false is uh, is not a consistent set right now if you're a dilethiist then you can't you can't say that, or at least you can't say that simply, mm -hmm. because it might be that the premises are true and the conclusion is false, but that's so yeah. the premise if the premises are true, then the conclusion can't be no, it would be inconsistent for the conclusion to be false, but maybe that's fine. Maybe the conclusion just is false because the world's inconsistent. Mm -hmm. So you can't use that definition of it you have to do something you have to do something else and basically uh there's one, uh, one other thing which um uh, where reason why logic needs to be modified as well is it's kind of a consequence of that view really uh of how logic works and the relationship between logic and consistency but if the premises are inconsistent with each other then anything will follow for them anything mm -hmm. will follow um right. that's uh, that's sometimes known as explosion, because if you have a, uh, a true contradiction, then you get an explosion uh, and everything becomes true or you can infer anything, everything from that. And of course, mm -hmm. if you're a dialetheist and so you believe a contradiction, then you don't want to be able to infer absolutely everything from that uh, because because some things aren't true. Dialetheists right. are sometimes confused with trivialists of whom there are very few. There is at least one person who's defended it. I can't remember their name, I'm afraid. Um, but the, uh, trivialism is the view that everything's true. And that's not my view, and it's not the Just all the things are true. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah, everything. Um, absolutely everything. And then all, all truths are by definition then trivially true, it seems like, right? That's why it's called trivialism? Well, uh, Or I mean, is it just that everything is just true? I don't, I'm afraid I don't know enough about where it got the name. I don't think uh -huh, it has to enough. say that they're trivially true, but it does say that they're all true. Um, but uh, if okay. you don't want to, if you don't want to think that, then you should reject explosion. And doing that, if you mm -hmm. have, so that just means modifying logic in a certain way. And when you modify logic so that explosion doesn't hold, and so that, uh, uh, and that also means you'll have to have a slightly different definition from the one which is based on consistency, uh, definition of validity, I mean. Uh, mm -hmm. Then that's called a paraconsistent logic, uh, which is, uh, mm -hmm. and one of the things that dilethiists have taken it upon themselves to do is develop these paraconsistent logics where not everything follows from a contradiction, which means they can believe their contradictions without them inferring everything and becoming trivialists. So for those of us back on the non-logic side of the world, back on the ground, right, right, this seems like it would cash out in terms of being able to claim it's okay that there are localized contradictions in the world, either as a result of our the weirdness of truth, like it was the one example you gave before, or as a result of certain other kinds of localizing and containing mechanisms that I think we can talk about here in a second that yeah. allow us to say there's a contradiction here, but it doesn't spread and create and trivial you know, and, and turn everything else true as a result of there being this because like you know the traditional view was you would want a universe in which nothing contradicts itself, right, and everything has to be right. internally consistent or else everything's out the window, it seems like. Yeah, that's right. So if you have what gets called classical logic, although it's, um, uh, that's, a, that's a bit of a, a kind of bit of retconning to, to call mm -hmm. it classical logic, but uh, that does, in, if you have classical logic in which everything follows from a contradiction, then you will end up with that, uh, with that kind of explosive inference, inferences being true um uh you won't be able to countenance there being true contradictions 
Which makes um, this look pretty, like a troll position, right? That's the very trolly version of dialetheism. But like, you want to say that it's like it's a more sophisticated position where not everything necessarily follows, and so it's a plausible view. So, so the thing is, it, it, it is a view that can be taken very seriously. I do think, just on the point of it being a troll position, I think uh-huh. uh, I should give a shout out to Heraclitus, who uh-huh. is sometimes identified as one of the first. Uh, dialetheists he would sometimes say things which seemed to contradict themselves uh, he Heraclitus was a pre-Socratic philosopher he's most famous for saying that you can't jump into the same river twice mm-hmm. uh, because and basically that's because the river's going to change and so it's not the same river but he's also he'd also talk about um, talk a little bit sometimes say contradictory things here's an example he said uh, the one and only wise thing is and is not willing to be called by the name of Zeus. That's uh, translated by Robin Waterfield. But uh-huh. he uh, that's Heraclitus just asserting a, a contradiction, just straight up. Now, Heraclitus right. was a slippery fellow, uh, possibly because <laughs> of all jumping in the rivers. The uh, rivers, he yeah. Would, yeah. Yeah, he would. And so... You know, he he would say things which were deliberately ambiguous, just to sort of ruffle a few feathers, the way that uh, where Socrates was famous for. Um, I mean, obviously, it's hard to know exactly what the deal was with Heraclitus because because he lived so long ago, but uh, he he was probably a bit of a troll, and so mm-hmm. so bit. I think you know, dialetheism may have begun in trolling. But it's which I think is an important <laughs> an important aspect of, of philosophical methodology. But uh, mm-hmm. he, you know, dialetheism may have begun in trolling, but that's not really where it is now. Uh, it's a serious position, and um, people will say you can't be serious, and then that's why they have to do all of this work developing these paraconsistent logics to show actually it can be done. And I think that's a project which is ongoing, and 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 there are still. There are still kind of complaints that actually uh, they haven't done enough to show formally that you can make sense of the view. It's still an open question whether you can or not. I think you can, but we can talk about that a bit more. Uh, Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I wanted to just, you know, in your defense here, like point out that um, as we were talking about before the show, there there are other traditions that have... That, that could be ar- argued at least look very similar to these kinds of um, paraconsistent logics as you were describing. Um, when I was messaging you, I mentioned that we had done a Discordian episode um, and you weren't familiar right. with the Discordians, right? But I, I cited to you the Discordian claim that all claims are true in one sense and false in one sense and meaningless in one sense and true and false in one sense and true and false and meaningless in some sense. And you were like, oh yeah, and that's uh, exactly, or not exactly, but like very similar to a non-Western traditional account of this kind of complex logic. So what do you think about like seeing the similarities between these kinds of traditions in the West and the non-West in the ironic trolley internet religion side of things? Like, do you do you think they're getting at these same kind of fundamental ideas? Do you is that the right way to understand them? So some of the uh some non-Western logics, in particular Indian logics, mm-hmm. so um, uh, logics developed by Buddhist philosophers and logics developed by Jain philosophers to express and reason with the kind of um, the kind of attitude that they have towards truth, uh, or that some of their philosophers had had, had towards truth. Uh, these things. Sometimes they do seem to have parallels with the kinds of uh, kinds of logical systems which are developed by uh, by Western philosophers as well. So Graham Priest wrote a book called The Fifth Corner of Four, uh, which is about it's, it's interesting book. He's so Graham Priest is probably the biggest name in um, defending dialetheism and has also been important uh, in the logical side and also in the kind of philosophical justification of it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he wrote this book where he was. Uh, using some of these kind of uh, kind of methods, um, sort of Western formal logical methods um, that have been developed in the context of dialetheism, to see if you could um, if you could use that to try to make a bit more sense um, uh, of some uh, otherwise confusing doctrines that you might find in some of these in some of these 
branches of Indian philosophy. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, some of you, uh, some of your sort of people who who are more expert than he is, and he admits he's not like an expert in in the sort of Indian philosophy. I think he doesn't know the classical languages that they're written in, uh, or that a lot of these texts are written in. Um, mm-hmm. I think some people responded to the book thinking, "Well, you know, this is." You know, this is a very laudable project and it's very good, but it, it, the things that he's saying about um, and, and his interpretations of the doctrines are a bit tendentious. And, and that's, uh, but um, one point that was made in a, in a review, I can't remember who, who wrote the review, uh, but a review of his book was that when Indian Buddhist philosophy went, when Buddhism went to China, then uh, it was changed a lot, but a lot of very interesting things were said. And so you can interpret, you can sort of view Priest's project. Um, in a similar context there uh, to that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's you might say, well, it's all very well, but it's not Indian Buddhism. But, you know, if it's all very well, then maybe it doesn't matter if it's not exactly what um, if it's not exactly what the Indian Buddhists that he's drawing on we're talking about. Um, yeah. And it's probably useful yeah. to say, you know, we are interpreting it through a certain lens and that changes it. It doesn't necessarily change it for the worst or the better, but it's like you're saying, it is the blending of different sort of cultural attempts to address these very deep, hard problems. Um, and that there seems like there's value in the comparison, even even after you've made all the proper caveats. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, I think that's, uh, I think, I think that's a fair, a fair assessment of what's, uh, of, of what Priest Project is really, uh, or at least was in that book. Um, and of course, I mean, of course also, you know, there are, so, um, there are th- there's sorts of things that are coming up in the text. It can sound like people are asserting contradictions, just as Heraclitus, who, who's Greek, um, were. Mm-hmm. He, he sounds like he's asserting a contradiction. You can imagine somebody uh, somebody uh, having a look at that and thinking, and they're a paraconsistent logician. They look at it and they think, yeah, this is this is just him asserting a contradiction. Why is everybody trying to make sense of him? Um, uh, trying to make sense of him in a consistent way when he's just straight up asserting these contradictions, and then people who knew more about it might say, "Well, that's that's not right." But it's still, mm. um, uh, I think Heraclitus in particular is deliberately open to multiple interpretations, and so, um, I mean, it a little bit depends on your attitude towards the history of philosophy and uh, how important it is that you're getting at exactly what the original authors thought. But of course, mm-hmm. I mean, they're not. I mean, these uh, the traditions that he's drawing on aren't monolithic, and there were, and the original sure. authors may have thought different things. Yeah, and there are so there's issues like different ways that you could approach this. Like the Buddhists will talk about the two truths, the ultimate versus the conventional, and some of that <laughs> stuff can start to look, I think, kind of like they are asserting paradoxes or they're asserting that they are they're paradoxes but they're acceptable you know constrained kinds of paradoxes the way that we were talking about earlier um or you have deliberate ambiguities and things like taoism and zen buddhism where the point is the um the focus on the ambiguity allows one to restructure our own mental categories to some extent or something like that. So I think there are lots of different related activities that it seems like are going on in these traditions that are still fundamentally philosophical in the sense that they're trying to get us to think in slow enough motion that we can really assess if everything follows and um, if we aren't even making assumptions that's at a fundamental level around questions like contradiction. So, so let me let's tie this back to some more other concrete things, um, yeah. and 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 by extension, let's get the other categories of dialetheism that I think you mentioned in your um, blog. In 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 the one that I thought was really cool, um, you talked about the urinal, right? The the classic art piece um, by Duchamp, where. Uh, the, and the debate about whether it is or is not a piece of art, and there you thought that it was an issue. It seems like that goes beyond the kind of tru- the kind of truth um, dialetheism that you were that you were explaining earlier. So, do you want to sort of maybe give a sense of like what your take is on the urinal, and by extension, um, this other kind of um, paradoxical truths? Sure. So. Uh, so it's not exactly my take on on oh, Duchamp's uh, urinal slash fountain, which, by the way, may have not been by Duchamp. Apparently, some there's some evidence it was by one of his female friends, although um, and, of course, and not of by him. Of course, it was. Sure, of course, yeah, it was. <laughs> possibly, but um, but it's uh, 
Um, so Graham Priest again and uh, mm-hmm. Damon Young wrote a piece about Eon, I think it was, uh, about how uh, Duchamp's fountain both is and is not art. And uh, I sort of, I saw this and I was like, okay, yeah, yeah very good. You'll just be saying um, there are reasons to think it's art and reasons to think it's not art, so why not both? But actually they said something much more interesting than that. So mm-hmm. what they said is that it's not being art is integral to what makes it art. Uh, so they say that it makes a sort of point about art um, by being placed in the context as an artwork but because it's not art, it's just it's just a urinal that they've just uh, they've just sort of nicked, or I don't know when they got it. But it's just a urinal that they've put in an art gallery. It wouldn't be able to make the point it does if it was art. So it has to not be art. But because it's making that point, uh, that makes it art. But so if that actually if that made it art, but also prevented it from being non-art, um, then it wouldn't be art anymore because it couldn't make the point that it was trying to make in the first place. So you get the same sort of if it's art, then it's not. And if it's not, then it is. You get this same dynamic that you get with the liar paradox. Uh, mm-hmm. Where if it's true, then it's not. And if it's not, then it is. Now, uh, you might not agree with them about this interpretation of it and say, well, actually, I think that um, I think it just is art and it's making a point about something else. So there's this question of artistic interpretation. But there's also this question about just whether we can make sense of the view. Um, mm-hmm. So say, suppose it did work the way that they say, or suppose that was how it was supposed to work. Uh, would that be... Um, you know, is that is that a possibility that something can both be and not be art? Now, uh, so they think it is, and they think that's the best way to understand the piece. And uh, this leads me to a this led me to sort of think about dilithism uh, in a slightly different way, and think that because one of the questions is, well, okay, so uh, why? Uh, um, why when you have true contradictions, why why? How do they arise? What happens? Right. Mm-hmm. Even if you can make the sort of for, do the formal logical things, right, and develop these frameworks so we could understand uh, how we should reason about them if there were any true contradictions, uh, you also have to have some sort of metaphysical explanation of why there are these con- true contradictions for us to be reasoning about. Even if you can reason about them, that doesn't mean that uh, that doesn't mean that there will be any to reason about. So. Mm-hmm. But this dynamic is uh, where it's put, so I call it explanation dilithism. The idea being that something is, uh, you get a true contradiction when something is a certain way because it's not that way. Uh, so, right. and then it has to, so it has to remain not that way because if it's being that way, prevented it from being not that way, then it wouldn't be that way anymore. The same with the liar paradox, the same with Duchamp's fountain status as art. So the really important uh, this, word there is the because, right? It It is false exactly. because it is true, where we emphasize the causal implications of the one thing leading to the other, right? Yeah, exactly. So it doesn't have to be actually sort of causal in the sense of billiard balls banging into each sure, other. Sure, right. Um, it can be, uh, it's a sort of more general uh, thing about real explanation. So causal explanation mm-hmm. could be one of them. Sure, uh, and sorry. We can talk I, about I, I didn't mean the, yeah, the more yeah. literal sense of causal, but I meant, yes, uh, a real explanation in that sense. Yeah, yeah, so a real explanation. Um, and what this does is with truth dialetheism, uh, it subsumes uh, that uh, that dynamic under a more general phenomenon as being when you have so truth uh, with truth, uh, then that leads to uh, gives rise to the semantic paradoxes because you get this thing being things being true because they're not, and but also you can have things which are art because they're not, and maybe you can have things which are other things because they're not. Um, it mm-hmm. could be a much wider phenomenon, and the semantic paradoxes are just a special case of that. uh, But this still allows you to say we can make a distinction between good and bad contradictions, right, or true and false contradictions in the sense that, like, we can give an if you can give a proper explanatory account of why it's true because it's false, that distinguishes it from situations where you just just straight up contradicted yourself. Is that right? 
Well, uh, so when we talk about straight up contradicting ourselves, um, I'll just... Uh, <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm using the lazy ethicist terms rather than the proper um, epistemologist no, no, terms. I apologize. No, no, that's, that, that's fine. But I just, um, because a dialetheist does want to have, uh, and they do want to give an account of um, what it is to not exactly contradict yourself, but to, they want to give an account of what's going on when you you say something and then it's like you say something that conflicts with it. So some kind of uh, notion of having incompatible cognitive commitments. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, so this is uh, sort of important for multiple reasons. One is just you want to give an account of what disagreement is. So if I think something, if I think that it's raining um, and somebody else in the same place, they think that it's not raining, then usually we disagree with each other but if it's possible for it to be both raining and not raining in the same place at the same time then we don't really disagree with each other because i might also think that it's not raining and they might also think that it is and so then we've uh, so we agree with each other we don't disagree with each other they need to give a different mm-hmm. account of disagreement and um the way that is quite popular among dialetheists for doing this is they say that there's a notion of there is basically two kinds of cognitive attitudes so as well as accepting a proposition there's also rejecting a proposition which is a sort of an attitude which does come into kind of cognitive or normative conflict with it so you shouldn't be accepting and rejecting the same thing and crucially rejecting a proposition is not the same as accepting its negation so rejecting Hmm. that it's raining is not the same as believing that it's not raining and indeed, that, if plausible. it is, if it is, I think it's plausible. It's it's kind of important if you're a dialetheist. It, it's uh, I mean, it's something that it's a real boon to them that they that, that people thought of this because if they didn't, if they had mm-hmm. to say that rejecting something was just the same as accepting its negation, then it would be very hard for them to give an account of. Uh, having incompatible cognitive commitments uh, just in your own person or with disagreeing with other people. It would be hard for them to give an account of that. And it would also be hard for them to give an account of um, of validity. I think uh, they, can use, they can use rejection in their understanding of logical validity as well. So without having to talk about, uh, talk about consistency, they can instead mm-hmm. talk about the conflict between uh, accepting and rejecting the same thing. That so, makes sense. Yeah. So are there other like major paradoxes where you feel like this position gets us a, a sort of leg up on addressing that particular paradox? So explanation dialetheism specifically, uh, or, or, or any of the kind of dialetheisms. If there's other, if there's other versions right. that you feel like you want to unpack as well, um, I'm curious to hear about that. Or if you know, seeing how this plays out on the on the field of of battle, as it were, a little bit more is something I'm interested in. So, I mean, one. So there are basically people who've talked about how there are two kinds of paradox, really. Or I mean, there are hmm. lots of kinds of paradox, but there are paradoxes where you're, but where it seems that something can't be just true or just false, right? It seems that true and false aren't, aren't enough options. Neither of those options is any good. You get, uh, or, or is probably satisfactory, you do get some paradoxes where it seems you want to say it's both, and you get others where it seems you want to say it's neither. Um, so there's the, the sentence, uh, this sentence is false. It seems that whichever it is, it will be the other one as well, whether it's true or false, it will be the other one. With this mm-hmm. sentence is true, which is called the truth teller paradox. It seems there's nothing, re- I mean, whichever one it is, it, it, there's no cause for it to be the other one, but it seems that it's true for its falsity wouldn't be grounded in anything. So it would just, uh, there's nothing to make it one or the other. And so there's a temptation to say that it's neither. Um, hmm. Now, any of these, so when, you, but whenever you have a situation where it seems, as Priest and Young described Duchamp's Fountain, uh, or uh, with the Liar Paradox, or various other things, um, uh, it's where it seems that if you have one, then that will make it the other, and where you have a sort of symmetrical case where it will work both ways. Whenever that happens, then that's where explanation dialetheism can sort of uh, they can offer that 
as an explanation of, of or, as, or as an account of what's happening there. Do, do you see other important places where that happens? Um, so, I'm curious. Yeah. So one of the ones I mentioned in in the post that you read was mm -hmm. uh, was the grandfather paradox. So uh, you know the thing with time travel. You go back in time and you kill your <laughs> Listeners grandfather. Listeners of this show are on board with killing their own grandparents, let me tell you. Well, uh, I, don't, yeah, go ahead. I, no, I, I don't, don't approve of it, but um, uh, in the example, you go back into... I mean, you can have ones which are less, less murderous versions of the same paradox, but where someone goes back in time and then they do something which prevent them from going back in time uh, and, and doing it. So then, um, but because they were only able to prevent their journey back in time by doing something that they did by making the journey and if they go back in time then um uh then that will explain why they couldn't but then if they couldn't that will explain why they couldn't do the thing which prevented them from going back in time so then they'll, they will go back in time after all and so you end up with this pretty much exact same uh, uh sort of circular dynamic that you mm -hmm. um that was identified in the case of the fountain and also in the case of of the liar paradox. But this, to me, seems a very bad result for, for the view, which I otherwise am very positive about, explanation dilutheism. Um, it seems that just parity of reasoning means that if we should treat these cases the same way. But the idea that you could, that going back in time and then doing something, perhaps killing one of your ancestors or perhaps something more benign, uh, which would in any case prevent you from going back in time. The idea that doing that would cause a sort of macroscopic uh, contradiction to just permeate throughout the whole universe because of not only have you gone back in time and not gone back in time, but also there'll be all of the consequences of those things wherever you're going mm -hmm. back or not going back would have different consequences. You've got this sort of radically inconsistent universe as a result of you doing that. Um, now, I think that this is not a view, uh, this is uh, not a consequence which explanation dilithiists have to accept. Um, mm -hmm. I think, to be honest, it seems to me almost a, a wholly unsatisfactory state of affairs to accept that that conclusion. I'd be very reluctant to accept it, and I don't accept it. But I don't. Re but given sort of other commitments, like the idea that causation is a is a form of real explanation rather than just being uh, uh, one thing after another in a kind of Humean way, like David Hume says, you know, the, the sure. causation is just uh, we we think of one thing as making another thing happening happen but it doesn't really uh, it doesn't really make it happen there's no uh, there's no sort of force there uh, making it happen it's just uh, you know it's just constant conjunction but if you think that causation is a species of real explanation and to be honest I do I'm kind of a realist about causation in that sense then it seems that uh, you know you go back in time and you've got the power to do this this thing and uh, then it just should create these. Uh, it should create these macroscopic, persistent dilithias, which a dilithia is a true contradiction, uh, which mm -hmm. seems a totally unacceptable consequence of the view to me. But I think it's just a sort of unsolved problem for somebody with the uh, particular set of commitments that I've got. One possibility is just that time travel is not possible. Um, sure, that would be but, nice. Uh, I would. I think we can all hope for that at least. Yeah, but also. But just time travel not being possible doesn't seem like a good enough reason, and it's like a no, sort of a terrible you know, reason. Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a get out for the view, but it doesn't it's seem wishful like... thinking is what it is. Yeah, I mean, um, I think time travel probably we're probably not going to be able to ever do time travel the way that they do in in, in science fiction films. But right, uh, but this isn't why we're not able to do time travel. Right, there should be there should be a right. better re right. There should be a better. It seems that our, our, our sort of our metaphysics kind of ought to be able to cope with it, right? It shouldn't. It shouldn't give this result uh, if time travel is possible, even if it turns out that time travel is not. possible. Are you not open to like a multiple worlds explanation or something? Or uh, so you don't. So like the Humean view, I sort of associate with like the fully deterministic. Like you are always going to time travel. You always did the thing because events are just events. Um, 
whereas like you could all you could maybe have a different view where going back either creates separate timelines or i mean it sounds like what you were describing earlier that like it causes you to go back which causes you to not go back which causes you to go back reminds me actually a lot of the plot of primer uh which is yeah, a particularly well, brilliant science fiction no spoilers i haven't seen primal oh well i won't give can. anything away for the i think more than 10 plus year old movie that everyone should immediately go watch um where i've heard only yes. good things about it but um, I think yeah, you should watch it the and then write a. Sense. You should clearly write a blog post about um, Primer and Dialetheism because I think it will um, it will get your head spinning in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe I should. I mean, I do. Th- I mean, I do sort of have some uh, have some ideas about how you might going at, go about solving this problem. Mm-hmm. But uh, I using um, some sort of logical techniques. So there's a logic. Uh, there's a sort of logical um, device called subvaluationism, which says mm-hmm. that uh, basically you have instead of having one set of one way that uh, one sort of set of truth values for the propositions to have, you have you have multiple ones, and something's true if it's true on any of them. But mm-hmm. the but each of these ways will be consistent. So if you have so um, if uh, you know, so if you go back in time on one and you don't go back in time on the other, then it will be true that you went back in time. It will be true that you didn't go back in time. But it, but there aren't any of these uh, where you both did and didn't. So it won't be true that you both did and didn't. So you kind of, you, yeah, so the logic's a bit weird, but um, I think that maybe there's something in that. And you might have, uh, but I haven't been able to make it work. Maybe I'll watch Primer and see if uh, see if that gives me any ideas. It could, it could, and then you, then we could um, collaborate on some um, ethics of dialetheistic uh, time travel. Um, that would be, I am, uh, yeah. yeah. If it is possible, then that is. Uh, we really ought to uh, have. Uh, we really ought to think about its ethics. Yeah. Right. So I'm curious what the implications are for this kind of view for uh, morality. So if it's possible for a piece of art to be art because it's not art, right? Is yeah. it possible for something to be moral because it's not moral or something like that? Well, maybe it is. Um, so I mm-hmm. think uh, so. Well, one so one view is, or which might have ethical sort of consequences for this is uh, if you look at if you look at sort of Marx. Uh, so Graham Priest has written a bit has written a bit about Marx. Uh, and how he interprets him basically as a dialetheist. He interprets Hegel as a dialetheist, and he thinks that Marx followed Hegel in this. Uh, you just uh, had to bring the social, the, the culture wars into this. So this is all just a trap for Marxism, is what you're telling me. This is all just bait and switch. I understand. Go well, on with, yeah. with your postmodernist neo-Marxist dialetheist. I'm kidding. I'm largely kidding. Um, but no, this is this is good fodder for for Twitter wars later. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, so Marx will talk about how people are people who are sort of the the proletariat are, are both free and not free, um, and uh, this and their sort of their freedom and their unfreedom are closely enough connected that they're not mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that it's not just well in a sense they are in a sense they're not it's you know they're they're, they're sort of more closely connected than that and to be honest I don't really understand and I'm not especially invested in the uh, in in this um, analysis itself but the point is that if uh, that there are that if, that if dilithiasm is true then it leads to this sort of other set of options um, for how we might want to analyze morally significant situations like the condition of of workers and in a capitalist system and and this is something which at least if you ask some people um that that's that that's actually something that people have done that they've um mm-hmm. that they have or marx uh has understood uh, the condition to be like that and if you just reject dialetheism then you'll never understand it you'll never get it right because that's actually what's going on and it's morally significant so hmm. that's i mean so that's a that's a reason that it could be morally significant because when you get these sort of complex situations uh then they uh, they may be they may be dialetheic situations they may be they may be mm-hmm. contradictory. So you want to understand them, you're going to want to get them right. If they are contradictory, and if dialetheism is true, then they might be, then that's something you've got to consider. 
Uh, you can't just reject it out of hand on the grounds that it's contradictory if you're already saying uh, even so this uh, that in in and elsewhere that uh, true contradictions uh, are possible. You've got so, to, possibility to bear in mind. So that seems like an example of. I don't know if I would call it necessarily a like a dialetheism with regard to the moral claim itself so much as like a fact about, or maybe it is a moral fact about individuals that they're both free and not free in that kind of way. And that, um, so like yeah, I was so trying to, yeah, I was trying to come up with some other examples. It's a morally examples. significant fact. So yes, yeah, yeah, I call it a morally right, significant, significant fact. fact. Yeah. yeah, it's a morally significant fact, but it's not, uh, it's not uh, that something is both right and wrong or, or both right and not right, something like that. Um, yeah, and that's what I'm trying to yeah. see if we could dig a hole and like if I find a version of that. So um, I had, I had for example, let me let me throw one at you and tell me if this counts on your view. Yeah, um, protest action was the idea that came to mind. So like for example, if I engage in self-immolation um, or you know like explicit law breaking for the sake of raising conscious awareness about an issue, uh, could we argue that that is it is um, explanatorily dialetheist in the sense that, like, the fact that I did something deeply, profoundly immoral, either to myself or to others, is part of what makes it moral. Yeah, I think um, I think that's uh, I think that's quite a good example. So you might so there are sort of two ways of understanding that. Mm -hmm. So one of them is not what you said, but I think it's important sure. to clarify it. So you might think. Well, you have a duty towards yourself not to engage in this action, but mm -hmm. you have a duty towards society to engage in this action. One of them makes it something that makes it the case that you sh uh, that you shouldn't do it. One of them makes it the case that you should. And so, but if you're a dialetheist, then it gives you more resources for uh, embracing that contradiction um, because you think that contradictions are possible. But in that case, neither of them have anything to do with each other. Uh, they're just mm -hmm. the reason why it's wrong and the reason why it's not wrong, uh, mm -hmm. and indeed obligatory perhaps, or, or supererogatory, uh, something that's good to do even if it's not obligatory. Uh, the reason those, they're kind of separate. Uh, now, um, there's something which is a sort of, uh, sort of stronger version of the contradiction which you can talk mm -hmm. about, which is where, which is I think how you described it, where it's wrongness is actually integral to it. Um, so the reason, so what makes it noble is because you're, you know, it's a great sacrifice to do something which is wrong. Uh, you, because doing mm -hmm. wrong things, being a bad person is a harm to you, at least. I mean, there's a sort of long and venerable tradition of that view. Uh, it's associated with Socrates. It's associated with the Stoics and, mm -hmm. and it's associated with a lot of people. People think that, you know, being, it's, it's bad to be bad, uh, right? You know, other things being equal, it's better to be a good person than a bad person, uh, just because because having done bad things is bad. Yeah, uh, it's bad and if you, if you like spent your whole life, life doing bad things, even in the service of the good, we wouldn't consider that necessarily a life of flourishing. And, and that, in keeping with the same tradition that you're referencing, I think that that is yeah a very good point that yeah you know there's a bad making property that is part yeah. of this action that permeates into you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if it wasn't a bad action, then it wouldn't be such a good action, basically. Um, right. Uh, now, I mean, an important uh, sort of uh, literary example of this is uh, in Jean-Paul Sartre's *The Flies*, uh, which is um, which is his telling of the Orestes story. Basically, so it's set in ancient Greece, and um, uh, Orestes. Uh, um, is it okay for me to do spoilers on this? Uh, on, on Sartre, yeah, I think we're, yeah, we're past okay, the statute yes. of limitations on Sartre. Oh. Also, also, Aeschylus told the same story, basically. But, but so, okay. um, yeah. So, so it's old. But uh, so, basically, Orestes does something which is bad. He he kills mm -hmm. he kills his uh, his uh, I think his mom and his stepfather. I think uh, it's a kind of sort of Hamlet situation where 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 his his his, his mother, the queen, has killed the king and and then married this other guy, who then assumes the throne. And Orestes kills them. 
and this is bad, and he is pursued by the Furies who, who for doing it, right, and he's, you know, he's mm-hmm. done something wrong and has to suffer the consequences of doing this thing, this wrong thing. But in doing this wrong thing, he saved his city, and the uh, the Furies, I think, pursue him out. Maybe I'm misremembering it, but that's basically the idea. And um, there's this bit uh, where, where Jupiter or Zeus shows up and tells him, you know, who do you think you are? You've done this terrible thing. Uh, you're a bad guy. And, and Orestes is like, I'm not a bad guy. I'm an existentialist. I don't think he uses the word, but that's the sort of idea. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, you, Zeus, don't make the rules. I make the rules because existentialism is true. Um, mm-hmm. But but it is very much a part of it that what he's done is in a very real sense wrong. Um in, in Game of Thrones, uh Jamie kills the uh he, he kills the, the mad king, right? Right. And if you know yeah, similar right, thing. Right. So Jamie kills the mad king and this is wrong. Uh, this is an example I think which in some literature on on uh imaginative resistance. So where but, um people have, have talked about a little bit. So where the um the uh, imaginative resistance, one of the things which is is hard to imagine when you're engaging with fiction, is that the moral laws of the uh, of the fiction are, are different. Um, so we think, no, that was the right thing to do, but in the world of Game of Thrones, it was it was wrong, right? It's kind of a fact, you know. According to the fiction, Jamie doing this was wrong, at least in a certain way. But that's why it was a sort of big sacrifice for him to have done it. So yeah, similar thing to uh, Orestes, uh, uh-huh. Orestes killing. I can't remember the names. It just yeah. quite a mess. I think what you were saying earlier is the is the part that really stands out to me as being sort of a valuable addition to our understanding here, which is we already have, like you said, the basic idea that like bad consequences could produce good results and that an action could be bad on the, the means or sorry, sorry, on um, bad means could produce good results. But like um, we already have a sense of it being sort of good in, in one sense and bad in another sense in that kind of way. And that doesn't seem like enough to get us the kind of juicy dialetheism paradoxes that we're talking about here. It's that we want the bad. So for example, like the badness of the means has to be uh, essential to the goodness of the consequences. So it couldn't yeah. just be just that Jamie does a bad thing to kill the king. It's that by doing the bad thing, he makes the killing of the king a good thing. Um, and so like I, I feel like I see that more with like the protest kind of... So it seems like ethical actions that are involving making statements... Right. If I'm trying to express some kind of statement that in those situations that that feature of it allows it to transmute sort of the badness of the action into the goodness of the consequences, because like otherwise the good, you know, like if you just lit yourself on fire without trying to make a statement, right, there's no good consequences that come about. It's that it is done specifically in that in that context that it creates this paradox that like the bad action is transmuted into this good action. Does that, does that seem right on your view? Uh, Well, it seems like a, uh, so when you said the bad action is transmuted into the good action, um, I think, so if you're not a dilithiist, right, and most people aren't, then it's very tempting to just, or and it's not always easy, but you will find a way, you know, where, you know, philosophers have got a lot of ingenuity and you'll find a way of understanding it consistently. So you can say, well, this is a, an action which would usually be bad, but it's not bad in this instance. And this is why. Mm-hmm. And if you're a consequentialist and all you're just doing is just kind of adding up the consequences and then you just look at the read and you just get one sort of number at the end, you read it off and say, well, there we go. That's the answer to whether it was right or wrong. Then it's easier to give a sort of consistent, consistent, um, consistent solution. But I think that uh, the point that I'd make about, which uh, I don't know if it's, exactly there in the case of Jamie Lannister. It is there, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure, in the case of Orestes, although it's complicated by the fact that existentialism is supposed to be true, so you kind of, you mm-hmm. decide what's right. But the idea being, if you think, if it wasn't, it's actually the wrongness of the action which makes it heroic to do, because it wouldn't mm-hmm. be heroic, it'd be easy. 
if it wasn't wrong, right? It's the it's the fact that you are right. just in you're sort of morally compromising yourself as a sacrifice to others, and that's heroic. But if it was like, oh well, it's so that was a heroic thing you did, so you haven't morally compromised yourself. But then it wouldn't be heroic because it wasn't wrong. There's no sacrifice there, and so you would have just mm -hmm. done this wrong thing, but it wouldn't have made you hurt. And so you you can, I mean. So basically, if dialetheism is true, it gives us a, a way of understanding these, which doesn't force us into accepting the consistent thing. We in a, a consistent solution, we can say it gives us. It says this is a the kind of dynamic which can happen. We can understand it, and it gives us a new way of understanding these things. And you know, you can argue over the details, like I said about Duchamp's fountain. You might not agree with Priest and Young's interpretation of that, um, right. but having that option on the table. If it is, you know, you want to have that option on the table in case it is right, unless dialetheism is just false, in which case you don't need it on the table and you should and you should actively rule it out. So it's important to <laughs> think about whether dialetheism is right or wrong because of that. I think that's a really good final summary. And I realize we're getting towards the end here and we got to get our lightning round in. Do you want to let folks have any suggestions for like especially non-classically analytically trained philosophers who might be interested in a um, a stepped down version of dialetheism? Is there any good reading they could look at? Uh, well, if you like podcasts in the okay. uh, so do you mean specifically to do with to do with sort of non-western stuff or non-analytic stuff or no not necessarily no just any any no i mean i mean for folks who like don't have a, a phd in philosophy like what could they listen to or read or look at that might help them sort of understand more about this position yeah well there's so this i mean there's no sort of getting around the fact that if you want to understand that a lot of the stuff i've kind of been talking about it does rely on a lot of formal logical work and so okay. to fully and so to fully understand it uh, then you kind of have to one thing which people could uh, which people could listen to is uh, so there's an interview um in the the history of philosophy without any gaps podcast that i mentioned earlier mm -hmm. peter adamson interviews graham priest about uh his what he says about indian uh, about his sort of paraconsistent understanding or dialectic understanding of uh of some things in in indian logic so he's got yeah he has him on the show and he interviews him and they talk about that and i mean i think okay. he uh, i think he did pretty well there although i'm not really uh i'm not really expert enough to tell whether uh, whether everything he said about the indian philosophy was correct but okay. uh, everything he says about the, the paraconsistent logic is correct sorry what Oh, we can link that in the show notes as uh, something yeah. for further resource. Great. Yeah, yeah, but that, that's that's a good one, and uh, you know he's you know he's entertaining, and uh, yeah, I enjoyed that one, and uh, so that's something people can listen to. Yeah, and I definitely recommend people go read your blog that you have. Um, do you want to go ahead actually just go ahead and share your Twitter handle as well? Folks can find that blog on that you've linked on there. I'm at Mike Bench Capon, all one word. So that's uh, uh, I mean I don't know if. If you'll put that in the show notes or what, but it's um, yeah, yeah, I'll include it in there as well. Uh, All right, so you are you are now at the lightning round. Oh, um, times. I know, right? So for folks who are just tuning in for the first time, right, I'm going to give you a series of things. You're going to tell me if they are real or not real, which seems particularly cruel after the past. 50 minutes of conversation, but uh, you don't get to hedge, you don't get to explain, you don't get to say both. Um, and at the end, you can complain a little bit, but for the most part, you are constrained to your one-word answers. So are you ready? So my one-word answer is real or not real? Real or not real. Yeah, your one-word answer okay. is really not real. Not real is just one word in this context. Yeah, very good. Um, it's both two words and one word. Um, <laughs> yes. So let me, let me just test you out first, right? Is anything real? Yes. Okay, some things are real, so let's find out what's real. Uh, is the external world real? Yes, real. Okay. Real. Colors? Real. Phenomenal consciousness? Not real. <laughs> Free will? Real. Selves? Real. Genders? Real. Races? Real. Species? Not real. Morality? Real. Rights? 
real. Oh, interesting. I don't think that's maybe a first for us. Uh, knowledge? Not real. Gods? Not real. Society? Real. Numbers? Real. Fictional characters? Not real. Holes? Holes as in... As in a hole in the ground, excuse me, sorry. Real. Chairs? Real. Sandwiches? Real. Science? Real. Natural laws? Real. Beauty? Real. Causality? Real. And finally, dharmas? Real. Wow. Big on the real side of things. You're going to get super canceled for that. That's bold. I respect it. Um, Well, thank you so much, Michael. Do you have anything you want to clarify on any of those claims? Or you you feel fairly... You you seemed very confident about your answers there for the most part. So Uh, I already mentioned earlier in the show that uh, with fictional characters, you know, mm -hmm, obviously I got mm -hmm. a lot of views about those because it's what my PhD thesis is about. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that the, the question's ambiguous and then one of the answers... On one of the readings, it's they're real, and on another reading, they're not real. But I said not real because I thought that was the one that you meant. Oh, I see. And you said that colors are real, but phenomenal consciousness is not. Did I get that correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. If you want me, I mean, lemons I... are yellow, but phenomenal consciousness isn't real. Okay. All right. Oh, I yeah. think we'll we would unfortunately have to get into a whole other episode. I imagine on that one. So. Yeah, um, I think I might have given the wrong answer on mor- Did you say morality is? Yeah, is that morality. One? Is morality yeah. real? No. no yeah, okay, you said morality is not real, but you said rights are real, I believe. Yeah, right. but I said morality is real, but that's not right. I, uh, no, it's not real. Okay, no, you said morality. you said it's not real. You got that one correct, I believe. I mean, I correct for you. It's wrong, obviously. Objectively, it is real, but... Um, yeah, no. I'm, okay. Yeah, don't know what to tell you. Yeah, no, it's fine. Uh, well, Michael, thank you so much. This was a fun deep dive into a term that I've seen thrown around on philosophy Twitter a lot, and I appreciate you um, dragging my my dumb ethics mind through uh, these kinds of uh, epistemic questions. So um, thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again to all our listeners, and especially to our patrons who make the show possible. I want to give a shout out to two new patrons. One is the T for Two podcast, and another is a top tier $40 a month patron who has chosen to remain anonymous, which means we can cross backed by dark money off our cult bingo card. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. And as always, I must thank our top tier patrons, our $20 tier patrons, Jude Law's Canadian accent and existence makes my pussy throb. Volunteer this summer. Learn more at campquest.org. Certainly got your money's worth on that one this week. Uh, Chad T and Jesse Urbinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And thanks to our forever and eternity top patron, Dave Maslich. Thank you all so very much. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on your podcast app. Please follow us on Twitter at ETVpod. And if you are an eccentric billionaire or if you notice just a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content. But most importantly, remember... You are the void, and the void is you.